Let's open the Word of God to John chapter 14. Without trying to outline the chapter for you at this time, because I don't want to distract you from the first verse, let's look at that first verse and consider it as much as the Lord will allow us. Let not your heart be troubled. Amen. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. Let not your heart be troubled. The first, these five chapters, John chapters 13 through 17, and I hope that you know the gospel of John enough that when I say 13 through 17, you have a vague or a pretty good idea on what these chapters are. But these five chapters are fabulously sublime with our Lord's intimate instruction and promises. They're special. These five chapters cover the last six hours before his crucifixion. We tend to look at the Gospels as being chronological and covering his three-and-a-half-year ministry, or if we're looking at his life, and like Luke, we get to read about him at 12, and we get to read about Mary before his conception, and we get to read about John the Baptist and his parents. And so we think it's chronological, and yet here we have five chapters that are covering just a few hours. Right. Chapter 12 has his last public words of preaching. Chapter 13 is the Last Supper, and from there, we make our way to John 18 and verse 1, which tells us he then entered the Garden of Gethsemane. So, these five chapters cover only a few hours, and it's important for you to remember that, to appreciate the intimacy and personal nature of what we're reading here in the 14th chapter. The first two chapters are in the upper room. Last Supper, foot washing, Judas identified, Peter prophesied, and then these words. The last verse of John 14 says at the very end that Jesus said to the apostles, Arise, let us go hence. And based on that, we look at chapters 15, 16, and 17 as occurring on the road from Jerusalem to Bethany, where was the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane? We're going to go slowly to avoid confusing or diluting the lessons of this first verse. Verses 2 and 3, though related, and I will show you how related they are next Sunday, are about heaven. I don't want to talk about heaven today. I want to talk about us being on earth and believing in God on earth and believing in his son Jesus Christ on earth and not having a troubled heart down here. You won't have a troubled heart up there. Right. He'll take care of that for you. But down here, you've got to take care of it. That's why it starts with the word let. It's your choice. A troubled heart is your fault. A troubled spirit is your fault. It's a choice not to let it happen. And that's what we want to be reminded of today. We covered John 13 so quickly last Lord's Day, and 14 is going to be different. For several reasons, 13 is made up of just a few large, well-known events. The glory of God that Jesus spoke of in verses 30 and 31, I dealt with extensively in chapter 12. I didn't need to repeat myself. Loving the brethren that Jesus spoke of in 34 and 35, we cover often. Don't need to speak of it again. The prophecy of Peter denying Jesus is not nearly as important as the actual sin 
of Peter denying Jesus and his recovery from it, which we'll get to in time. But we race through John 13, and I hope not too fast, but an appropriate pace. Now we want to slow down to grasp the direct words that Jesus has for his apostles. What we had in chapter 13, other than the foot washing, is in the other gospel accounts. It's repeated over and over about Judas, about Peter, and about brotherly love. But what we have here is unique to John. We want to embrace it. Let not your heart be troubled. The apostles had reason to be troubled. What they had heard in the previous chapter was troubling. And so we should understand that context about their case. These are some of the most personal and precious chapters, verses in the Bible. And they take up a quarter of John, and it's only covering a few hours. Maybe three, maybe six hours, three to six hours. I hope that you have thought about some verses possibly to memorize from this chapter. You may already know verse 1. It's only got 14 words in it. It's got three clauses, 8, 6, and 6, and you should be able to learn it very easily. Or less than that, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. That's a great verse to memorize, but there are some promises coming in this chapter that are precious indeed. And I will make this point several times. Verse 27 in this chapter is like an internal commentary for verse 1 given by the Holy Spirit within John chapter 14. Now we have said many times the Bible is its own best commentary. But sometimes you have to look a long ways away from a given chapter to find a commentary, but not here. Look at John 14 and verse 27. Peace I leave with you. Jesus to his apostles still Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. That verse explains John 14, 1 so well. To have a troubled heart is to have a heart that's fearful. It's a heart that's worried. It's a heart that's anxious or concerned. It has uneasiness, is to be troubled. And so we have it explained here. Don't let your heart be afraid. Don't let your heart be troubled. I'm leaving peace with you. I'm going to give you my peace. And I'm not going to give you like the world's fake peace. There's so much in that one verse, John 14, 27. The world gives fake peace. If you'll drink enough from this bottle, you can have peace. Well, yeah, you'll be comatose if you drink enough from this bottle. Or if you take a drug so that you can hallucinate. Or you'll take a drug so that you can imagine that your circumstances are different than they actually are. You'll have peace. But you're going to come out of that high. You're going to come out of that buzz. You're going to have a hangover to boot. And you're going to be back in your problems. And they're going to be worse than they were when you picked up the bottle or the drugs. And so that's the world's fake peace. They don't have peace. The Bible says, there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. They are like the moving sea and coughing up mud all the time. This is real peace that we have, and it's a choice to have it. We want to think about everything we can within limits to understand this first verse of John 14. Some have called these chapters, 13 through 17, the Holy of Holies. As we enter the presence of God and of Christ, we're going to hear a prayer that Jesus offers in chapter 17 to God his Father about the apostles. That is like being in the Holy of Holies. 
to hear Jesus praying. Now we read in the other Gospels that he went up into a mountain and prayed all night. We don't know a word that he prayed. But in John 17, we know exactly what he prayed. Right. It's precious. Amen. I, Amen. Pastor, you sound like you're trying to sell the word of God. Amen. You bet I am. That's, right. That's my job. I want to promote it. I want to dramatize it the very way the context tells me to. I'll make a difference between John 14 and Leviticus 14. I consider the difference to be significant. And so would you with even a superficial reading of both chapters. This is special and I want you to embrace it so that you can get the most from these verses. In the ordinary course of things, you and I together will never pass this way again. I'll be buried and fertilizing dandelions and someone else may be able to pass this way with you through John 14 but while we're here let's get as much as we can out of it if you think John's gospel is one of your favorite gospels then this chapter should be right up there and some of the verses in this chapter should be right up there if you love the Lord Jesus Christ and you want to delight in him and walk with him you'll cherish every word of this chapter do not restrain Church, brethren, do not restrain your love of Christ to be only or primarily conceptual, doctrinal, or soteriological, which means the doctrine of salvation, the study or knowledge of salvation. We don't want our knowledge of Jesus Christ just to be the knowledge of salvation or the knowledge of a concept, because he's more than a concept. He's a person, and he's dealing very personally intimately, privately, with his closest friends in John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. We want to embrace that. There is so much more to Jesus Christ than God's redemptive means for your eternal salvation. Yes, he died to save us from our sins. Yes, he died to guarantee heaven. Yes, he died to pay the adoption price for us to be the sons of God. But he is also the friend of sinners and the friend of the troubled. And he tells them how to be saved from their troubles. Here is personal affection of the man, Christ Jesus, who loved Lazarus and his sisters. And this gospel tells us that. That he had a special affection for Lazarus and Martha and Mary. And Peter and John. And maybe you. You say, why do you say maybe, Pastor? Because there's a love described in John 14 that doesn't apply to all of God's children. He has loved his children with an everlasting love and has guaranteed their eternal life. And he loves them in that respect and many angles or aspects or facets of that respect. But there is a personal fellowship and intimacy and love with God in Christ promised in this chapter that follows our love of Christ. And because I can't help myself... I want you to look at verses 21 and 23 with me again. We've done it before. In this chapter, right now I'm selling the chapter. And I mean that in the most respectful, reverent terms for the word of God. I want you to love John 14. This is Jesus at his personal best with his apostles. Look at verse 21. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. 
This is present tense conduct by you that results in future reaction by God and Christ. Amazing. We love 1 John 4.19 where it says, We love him because he first loved us. But that is one angle, one aspect, one perspective of God's love. This is a different. This is God loves us because we first loved him. Either believe the word of God or not. It's another angle. And this one is on fellowship. If you have the first movements of love toward God, of true fear of God, and wanting to please him, it's because God first loved you, sent his son to die for you, and sent the Holy Spirit to regenerate you. Right. So we believe 1 John 4, 19. Mm -hmm. But if you want to enjoy the fullness of God's love and Christ's love for you in this world, you start by loving him, right. which is because he first loved you. Right. We love him, and when we love him, and the more we love him, the more he loves us. That is what the text says. This is Jesus with his saved, beloved apostles. They could have a fuller expression and manifestation of God and Christ's love to them if they would love him. 23 says the same thing. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words. As Charlie prayed, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. In verse 21, my Father will love you, I will love you, and will manifest myself to you. Verse 23, my Father will love you, we will come to you, we will make our abode with you. These are the kind of personal promises in John 14. Show me where it gets better than that. The Apostle Paul would pray for it in Ephesians 3, 14 through 19, that we would know the love of Christ until we are filled with all the fullness of God. Well, that's described right here in promise form. And, and it's, we're told how to get it. We have his words. Are we going to keep them? Are we going to obey them? And are we going to embrace and love God and his son, Jesus Christ? And if we do, and to the degree we do, and the more we do it, by keeping his commandments, the more he will love us, manifest himself to us, and abide with us. Amen. This is Christianity in brief. In verse 1, in John 14, it's a summary of Christianity. Growing in delight and trust in God and to do the same for his son Jesus. Arminians need to stop focusing on John 1.12, John 3.16, and verses like that. You would think that that's the only verse they've ever read in the Gospel of John. Calvinists need to stop focusing on verses like John 1.13 and 3.3, 3.5, 3.8, 5.24, 5.25, and so forth. They need to come to John 14 and learn about an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ that transcends intellectual devilish knowledge of doctrine. This is far superior. This is between Jesus and his apostles. They're going to be preachers of doctrine. But they needed something better than that. Right. They needed a foundation for it. They needed an adornment of it. And that was a personal relationship with Jesus Christ greater than they had. And it starts right in verse 1. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. I'll show you just how much that should mean to us. 
Now, God, our Father, has arranged a few circumstances for this church and for your pastor. Just ten days ago, on a Wednesday evening, we considered King Hezekiah being faced with a terminal illness at the age of 39 and being faced with Sennacherib outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And he trusted in God like no other king. Did we learn that? 2 Kings 18.5, that he was number one in trusting God. And let not your heart be troubled because you believe you trust God. That's the, that's the cure for it. That's the remedy. So we just had Hezekiah, and he should be fresh on our minds, and he was on mine. Our church reading program for yesterday was 1 Samuel 30, about David at Ziklag. David is living among the Philistines. He wishes he was in Israel. The Philistines and Israel at war, he wishes he could help. His whole life is messed up. The Philistines won't let him be in battle with them for good reason. They were the only intelligent ones. Achish certainly wasn't. And David certainly fed Achish what he wanted to hear about what a good boy David had been while he had been living at Ziklag. They traveled three miles, three days home to get back to Ziklag, a village among the Philistines where they were living. As they crest a hill, the city's smoldering because it's been burned to the ground. David's wives are gone. David's children are gone. Everything is messed up. Israel's at war. I'm their anointed king. I'm not helping. I am exhausted from this trip. My city's burned. The Amalekites have come and taken everything. And my friends want to stone me. Let not your heart be troubled. No one in here is any, in any situation like that situation. So that was yesterday. On Monday of this week, while I was studying in John 14, and the Lord had personally impressed 27 on me about peace, I get a call from Michigan because my wife's first cousin, 45 years of age, on Saturday had made arrangements for his pets to be all taken care of by friends and family. This is an unbeliever, by the way. Had made arrangements for his pets to be taken care of, had texted relatives that he loved them, had gotten all his papers in order and put them on the kitchen counter, had cleaned the house meticulously from top to bottom, left a note to his best friend, I hope you'll forgive me, called 911, waited until they got to the driveway so that they would be the only ones to see what they're going to see and to clean it up so that the family wouldn't have to, put a shotgun under his chin and manipulated the trigger and blew his head off. So the Lord had me in John 14, 27, and I get that call. Now I got that call from a believer. And we got to speak for a little while, but it brought home to me, 1427, not as the world giveth. Right. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. And so there at Portage Lake, just between Pinckney and Dexter, Michigan, where I grew up, a 45-year-old young man, I consider 45 young when you're 61. Anybody else in here consider 45 young? Uh -huh. He blew his brains out. Now that's trouble. Yeah. 
Let not your heart be troubled. That's the stupidest thing you can ever do when you're troubled. Why do you want to meet God as a murderer? Suicide is self-murder. There's no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. I just can't take it anymore is what they'll often say and write. I just can't take it anymore. I've got to end it all. Oh, no, no, no. When you pull that trigger, you don't end it all. You start a whole new relationship with God as your judge, and you'll wish you had never pulled it, but that you had pulled something else. That young man had opportunities for the truth and didn't care. I got to preach to him twice in the last five or six years with two funerals where he sat there and heard the truth. In the second service, you'll hear some things. God sends circumstances our way to arrest our attention. God sent some circumstances the way of these men, and they were troubled. Jesus had said he was going away. Look at chapter 13, verse 33. Little children, Jesus said to his apostles, little children, yet a little while I am with you. We've only got a few hours, guys. And as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you, just like I told them I'm going to go away, we've only got a few hours now. And then I'm going to be in the grave for three days and three nights. Then I'll see you for a few days, but then I'm going to be gone permanently. I'm going to be gone to heaven. And just like I told the Jews, they wouldn't be able to follow. You're not going to be able to follow. You know, Peter and him had a little exchange there. And he said, not now, Peter. You will get to follow me, but not now. All these things I want you to consider. Is your heart troubled and why is it troubled? What is it troubled with? That trouble can be taken away by following the remedy of this one verse. Now, there's a remedy in verses 2 and 3, and there are remedies throughout this chapter, but I want verse 1. Ye believe in God. That should be enough. But there's more, because we live on this side of the cross. We are blessed to be on this side of the cross, and to believe on Jesus Christ adds a whole new dimension, a whole new dimension to loving God and finding peace for troubled hearts. Lord, help us. The Lord arranged a number of things to come together this week for us and these words, let not your heart be troubled. The context of these words are, this is the last few hours of our Lord's life. The context of these words are, one of you is going to betray me, and they did not know who it was. Because in verse 22 of chapter 13, it said that these disciples looked one on another doubting of whom he spake. Now, doubts are part of a troubled heart. They didn't know who was going to be. They had no idea it was Judas Iscariot. They, they thought there was as much likelihood as it was John, James, or Peter than it was Judas. So they had doubts. And they had been told that when he was betrayed, he would be betrayed into the hands of men, and he would be tortured, crucified, and, and killed. Then we have here that his glory was about upon him. In verses 31 and 32, we have a prophecy that Peter, their leader, was going to deny him three times before morning, and it was already night. That's a bunch of bad news. They were troubled. Now, the very, very, very small context is the previous word to this chapter, and it's the last word of chapter 13. What is that last word? Thrice. Peter, you'll deny me thrice. Let not your heart be troubled. Isn't that wonderful? Let not your heart be troubled. Jesus had a lesson for Peter. 
And we are told how he allowed it, how he arranged it, how he limited it, how he prayed for Peter, and what he wanted Peter to do as soon as it was over. And it was quick, but it was painful. Peter, I have got to humble you and teach you a lesson. I'm letting Satan have you for a little while to sift you. You're going to deny me three times before morning. You're, gonna, you're not going to fail. I've prayed for you. You'll not fail. But when you're converted back, when you've repented, when you've wept bitterly, strengthen your brethren. Right. Be back to the leader that you have been. And take these apostles and lead them into the New Testament. And we read about that in the book of Acts. After Jesus asked him three times, Simon Barjona, do you love me? Lovest thou me? Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Because that's what Jesus wanted Peter to do. But the last word of chapter 13 is thrice. Now, if you were Peter, would you be unnerved by John 13? If you were another apostle, knowing he was your leader, and stronger and more bold and zealous than you are, would you be unnerved? Yes, if you knew that one of the 12 was going to betray Jesus that night, would that nerve, unnerve you? Right. Let not your heart be troubled. We have in John 14, 1. Let's not underestimate the importance of the first clause that we have right here because it's repeated. Let not your heart be troubled. That's the clause that is number five in John 14, 27. Let not your heart be troubled. Heart here is your feelings and your thoughts of spirit, not the pumping muscle in your chest. Trouble here is uneasiness. It's the opposite of peace. Peace is to be free. It's the absence of fear or worry. That's what we want. We want peace. Jesus wanted them to have peace. Now their life was going to be, their life was going to be troubled, but he didn't want their heart troubled. Troubles will come our way. But troubles should not affect the way we look at them or think about God or think about ourselves in light of God. Right. Troubles are coming. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But he delivereth them out of them all. Amen. And so we need to remember that. There's a remedy far greater than bypass surgery that only Jesus can give. And you'll want to read on in John 14 to learn about it. This chapter is so intimate because it's Jesus and his ministers only. There's only 12 of them in total now that Judas Iscariot is gone. We can take every word. Though some of them will be applied primarily and initially to the apostles, but whatever lesson Jesus had for them, we can benefit from those words as well. Even where that instruction is apostolic. And there are some verses that are apostolic, like in verse 26, God, through Jesus, is not going to bring all things to your remembrance. That was apostolic. Everything Jesus had taught, and they couldn't remember any of it. Had he said in John 6, one of you is a devil, had they figured out who the devil was yet? Not a chance. Because they they, nothing came to their memories yet. But everything was going to come to their memories when John 14, 26 was fulfilled for them. God doesn't bring things to your memories. Quizzers, is that a true statement or not? Those of you that get up in this pulpit, does God bring everything to your memories? That's why we have notes. Because he hasn't promised us that, and he doesn't do that for us, but he did that for the apostles. Their hearts were troubled by those things of John chapter 13. And you should grasp our Lord's 
words here as originally intended for his 11 because they're the ones that were troubled and he wants to comfort them. Heart trouble is a common problem of God's people. And we don't mean the muscle. We don't mean atherosclerosis or other troubles of the heart. We don't mean arrhythmias. We mean troubles by being anxious or worried or unduly careful for things in your mind and in your spirit, which in the Bible are often other words for your heart. We're not talking about peace that's eternal or legal or vital or final. We're talking about practical peace, the peace that takes us through every day and every night and helps us live with a joyful spirit and a cheerful heart that results in a continual feast. It's practical peace that we have in John 14. Jesus isn't giving a lesson about, I'm going to make peace with God for you apostles. He said, peace I leave with you. Not peace I make for you, but peace I leave with you. So let's make sure that we've got the right peace. in my, The peace that we need every day. The peace so that we're not worried. The peace so that we're not fearful. The peace so that we're not uneasy and disquieted in our spirits. You know, I had the privilege a number of years ago of being in the, in the office of a local cardiologist when one of our older members needed to go visit this cardiologist. And he was a well-known cardiologist that had been pulled out of Houston, Texas, and a big heart operation there to be here in Greenville. And I remember him sitting down and saying... I just want you to know, before I get started, that I can't cure or heal the human heart. There's only one physician that can do that, and I believe that we ought to talk to him before I say anything else. Amen. And then he prayed Amen. to God, who's the only one that knows and can cure and has the remedies for the human heart that counts. The human heart that counts the most is the heart that has our feelings and our thoughts. It's our mind and our spirit joined together in this word heart. We use the word heart for the seat or the place of our affections, where, where our thoughts rise and our ambitions and our feelings and love or hate arises. I appreciated that. I'm not mentioning his name. I still remember it well. But uh, that's correct. He was right. All he could do was possibly a little bit of therapy or a few alterations to the muscle that pumps in a chest. A good spiritual heart can deal with any physical heart problems, so it should be the priority. A bad spiritual heart can ruin your life with far more pain than any physical heart issues. So the spiritual heart is the most important. The joy of the Lord is our strength, Amen. the Bible tells us. The joy of the Lord is our strength, not duty. Duty isn't a great motivator. Duty doesn't make great men. The greatest men are made so by joy or by love. Love and joy are powerful motives. And the joy of the Lord is our strength, from Nehemiah chapter 8. And so, to have a troubled heart, which you have chosen, because that's how it comes, is to choose weakness instead of strength. So you'll be a weak Christian instead of a strong Christian, if you don't choose a cheerful heart, a thankful heart, a praise-filled heart. The consequences of a troubled heart will be debilitating, dysfunctional, and destructive. 
bad emotions, bad feelings, bad thoughts will consume and distract you from productivity. Think back. Except our children, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You are messed up about something. Something has you angry. Something has you fearful. Something has you afraid, troubled, irritated, uneasy, disquieted, worried, anxious. It has the ability, if you don't stop it, to continue to go round and round and round in your thoughts. You cannot let go of it. It's just there all the time, and productivity just plummets. It's debilitating. It sucks the, it sucks the life out of your soul. Do you, those are words I like to use. <laughs> Lord, I hope that when I use them, it's not long before I confess and press forward again. Sherry, it's sucking the life out of our souls. Well, that's because we're letting it. I thought the first word was let. Okay, it's because we're letting it. It says don't let it. But these three things that I want you to think about, are it's debilitating. Instead of a heart with a motive and wisdom for others, you must rather be helped yourself, or you don't get help, and you just continue, continue in a downward circle of negativity. Instead of delighting in God and all that is in Him, you're in circles of negativity. Instead of growing in faith and grace, you enter a downward spiral toward defeat, and you become destroyed. The apostle knew, so he said, cast down, but not destroyed. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it's okay to be cast down once in a while. It's okay to have those troubles arise, but we don't let them control our hearts. We get rid of them. We turn them over to the Lord. Be careful for nothing, which means be anxious for nothing, be worried for nothing, be afraid of nothing. But by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your heart. Let not your heart be troubled, but let your heart have perfect peace. Our Lord's word, let, is an imperative verb, and it indicates that this is an instruction for them to do or not to do something. And since there's a negative attached, it's not to do something. And so let not your heart be troubled. Your heart wants to be troubled. Your heart wants to focus on the little things and get all worked up about them. No one in here has a worse problem or heart disease than I do. But I hope that I don't let it take control of me. Right. I, hope it, I hope it only gets its moments. And then I tell it to shut up, sit down, and be good. And that's what we've got to tell our hearts. Right. You can control your thoughts. Your thoughts are not out of your control. I'm not going to think that anymore. I'm going to think good thoughts about that person, about that thing. I'm going to think the right thoughts. I'm going to go back and remember everything that I've been taught and lay hold of those things and think them instead. Amen. Let. What God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Right. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. You know the words, let not. Don't allow it. Don't permit it. Can't happen. Not on my watch. Not in our house. That's football language. Let not the wife depart from her husband. You've got lots of let nots in the Bible. You can and must rule your spirit. Proverbs 16.32 says a man that can rule his spirit is greater than a man that can take a city single-handedly. Right. That tells us how terrible the heart is. 
and your heart wants to trouble you. It wants to twirl things around and just mess you up. And it will. It's debilitating. It's exhausting. It's destructive. It's dysfunctional. You can't reach out. You're zapped. You're tired. I can't do it. You lose your motives. You lose your zeal. You lose your power. You lose your faith. It consumes you. You think about it day and night. In bed it chases you. Let not your heart be troubled. We can have a continual feast, Proverbs tells us, with a merry heart. And it's a choice to have a merry heart, and it's a choice to have a troubled heart. And so Jesus tells his apostles, I know I just gave you some bad news, but don't let your heart be troubled by it. And then the promises that come are just fantastic. I'm going to get you through all these things and then some. You think that I did good? You think that I did some pretty impressive miracles while you were walking around with me in John chapter 1 through 12? You're going to do greater works. You think that I have an open door with heaven when I pray that God answers? Like you heard in John chapter 12 when I said that I wanted to glorify the Father and the Father thundered from heaven? If you pray in my name, my Father's going to hear you. It's all, com- it's all coming. It's powerful. It's weighty. Promises for them. And through them, these promises are ours. Some of the apostolic things, if you think, well, I wish verse 26 was for me. Why? I'm glad it was for them. So they wrote down what he brought to their remembrance so that I have it in writing. I'd rather have it in writing. I don't really trust what goes on up here. I'd rather have it in writing. So don't don't resent any of that. Our Lord's negative by the word not indicates that your heart will try to do what it shouldn't do. Let not your heart be troubled. Your heart's going to want to be troubled. There's things bothering every single one of you. There's things that can and do bother me. But we can't let them bother us to be debilitating or dysfunctional or destructive. We can be cast down, but only momentarily. Then we stand back up and say, thank you, Lord, for all your promises. Thank you, Lord, for what and who you are. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done in the past for me and for others and that are recorded in the Bible. Those are the three witnesses of experience. Remember? We have experience Because the Bible gives us the experience of others, our brothers in here have their experience, and we have our own experience. And Romans 5 tells us about our experience, which gives us hope that like he's delivered in the past, he will deliver in the future. Like he's delivered for my brethren, he'll deliver for me. Like he's delivered in the Bible, he'll deliver for me. And so then we, hey, it's a great day. Oh, I'm temporarily this, or I'm temporarily that. So what? It's going to be taken care of maybe tomorrow, maybe the next day, in the Lord's perfect timing. Amen. And so we go on. Let not your heart be troubled. He needed these men to go on. Do you know what kind of a job they had in front of them? These are fishermen from Galilee. It says that there was a great company of priests that were converted to the faith. Fishermen preaching to priests in Jerusalem. Redneck fishermen from the backwoods of Galilee in Jerusalem, the center of Jewish learning, preaching to a great company of priests. Who in the world is going to make them capable of that? Then preaching to Gentiles. Then turning the world upside down. Here's how the Lord Jesus got started. To get you ready for the rest of your life. Let not your heart be troubled. Have you ever wasted a day with a troubled heart? Anybody here ever wasted an hour? 
Okay, yeah. since, since yeah. it's not a day, and nobody wants to nod their head. Hey, have you ever wasted an hour with a troubled heart? Oh, yeah. Yes. Any longer? Has it ever stretched out to a couple days? <laughs> okay. Yeah, I know all about it. We've wasted a lot of time in our lives with troubled hearts. That's right. Because when you've got a troubled heart, you are not productive. And I mean that, I don't, I mean that in every way that you want to think about it. Right. Lord, forgive us. Amen. Forgive us. You have given us so much, we should never have troubled hearts. That's right. Brethren, there's three D's, not the three D's I just gave you. That's what your heart wants to cause you, debilitation, dysfunction, destruction. But let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and look at the Apostle Paul's warning there. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let not your heart be troubled. You can control what your heart feels. You can control what your heart thinks. The Bible says, set your affection on things above. Right. So you can set your affection. Right. Affection doesn't take you. Love doesn't happen. Love is a choice. Love right. is something you make happen. Love is a choice to treat another person a certain way. Love is a choice to set your delight and pleasure on an object. And so the Bible says, set your affection on things above. You, it's a choice to make. So we have, let not your heart be troubled. But I want to come over here to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where our brother Paul, very much like our brother David, had a lot of troubles. And I want to start at verse 8. We are troubled. Now, what does he mean when he uses the word trouble there? I thought Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. He said, we are troubled. But he's not talking about his heart. He's talking about the outward circumstances of things happening to him. Okay? Yep. It's a difference. Mm -hmm. We're all going to be troubled that way, this way, but we're not supposed to let those troubles stir up our heart and make it shaky and uneasy and twist us out of shape. And watch the words that are used. Watch the Holy Spirit-inspired words that are used. We are troubled on every side, yet not troubled. Yet not distressed. Yet not distressed. Distress is overpowering pressure. That's what the word stress means. Overpowering pressure to bend you out of shape. Do we ever use the words... Been out of shape? Because troubles have distressed you. Stress is pressure. Distress is pressure that is not making you better, but making you worse and twisting you out of shape. But look what the apostle says. We are troubled on every side, and he and the other apostles were, yet not troubled in our hearts, not distressed, not been out of shape. We are perplexed. We have dilemmas that are difficult, but not in despair. Despair is the loss of hope. The word despair means no hope. You give up hope. We are perplexed. We don't know what to do at the moment. Some of our dilemmas are serious and overwhelming, but we're not without hope in them. We know that God will come through and deliver us. These, these D words are precious. Persecuted, but not forsaken. They knew that Jesus was still with them because he had said, I will come to you in John 14. Paul was resting on John 14, cast down, but not destroyed. Destruction. Destruction is loss of function. Destruction is loss of productivity. Look at those three D words. No despair, no distress, no destruction. 
Because though we're troubled on every side, and though we have perplexities, and though we're persecuted, and though we get cast down from time to time and a little discouraged, we are not dysfunctional, we are not debilitated, we are not destroyed. We're not distressed, and we're not in despair. Thank you, Lord. This is the word of God to us, and it's precious and good and valuable if you'll pay attention to it and submit yourself to it. This is active heart care. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 4, keep your heart with all diligence. Keep thy heart with all diligence. We usually think of keeping our hearts as putting off a temptation out there. But really, it's the temptations in here that we need to say no to. Let not your heart be troubled. That's keeping your heart with all diligence. Hey, what's that feeling arising for? That's not right. You can talk to yourself that way. David said, oh my soul, why art thou cast down within me? Talk to yourself. Hey, self, that's not a right thought. That's not biblical. That's not kind. That's not loving. That's not virtuous. I'm not going to think that anymore. I'm not going to feel that way anymore. I should feel tender toward that person. I will feel tender toward... So shut up and listen to me and do what is right. Think what is right. Feel what is right. Keep thy heart with all diligence. For out of it are the issues of life. Your productivity, your service to others, your glory to God, your praise of Christ comes from a disciplined and ruled heart. If you will keep your mind fixed on Jehovah, he will give you perfect peace, the Bible says. In Isaiah 26, 3 and 4. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Second service. You got any remedies for me? About God and his attributes, God and his deliverances, or God and his promises? Maybe we'll have time to share a few. If you saw my notes, you'd say we're not going to have any time at all. Be careful for nothing. I've already quoted that, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. It's the New Testament counterpart to Isaiah 26, 3, and 4. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. That's let not your heart be troubled. That is, let your mind be stayed on him. Because the next words are, ye believe in God. Ye believe in God. That can keep your faith. Believe also in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to do this. If you doubt that God can give such peace, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, not peace that you've experienced before, because it doesn't care what you've experienced in the way of peace before. It says peace that passes all understanding. It is an incomprehensible peace. It is an overwhelming peace. Everything is fine. Did I just say that, self? It's better than fine. Heaven's on the other side. Jesus is on this side. Jesus is on the inside. He can. You say, I I just don't know if I believe it. Then you need to read Mark 4 before you sleep tonight where Jesus and his apostles are on the Sea of Galilee. Where is Jesus? Down in the boat, down in the ship, asleep. When he said, my peace I give unto you, did he know about peace? Amen. He's sleeping. 
That ship is tossing like a bobber in a storm. They come down, Master, carest thou not that we perish? They didn't say it quite like that. <laughs> Master, carest thou not that we perish? Oh, ye of little faith. Because they didn't believe in God enough. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. So Jesus had to rouse himself from a sleep and say what word? Peace. To start Peace. Be still. And there was a great calm after a great storm. He can do it. He will do it for you. Jesus was troubled in spirit. This is embarrassing to read this. Let not your heart be troubled. If there was anyone that should have had a troubled heart that was getting the better of him, it should have been the Lord Jesus himself. The events of chapter 13 were going to happen to him. They were going to happen by the apostles against him. He should have been the one troubled. And he was troubled. How did he deal with it? It says in verse 21, when Jesus had thus said, chapter 13, he was troubled in spirit. This is when he told the apostles, one of you will betray me. In verses 18 through 20, it says Jesus was troubled. And it was, he was troubled about the fact that one of those trusted men of his was going to betray him over to his enemies for his crucifixion. So how did he deal with it? Well, you know he trusted in God. But what does it say that he actually did? Here's what I get from verse 27. He identifies Judas Iscariot by handing him a sob. And then Jesus said, That thou doest, do quickly. Now, is that a pretty fast remedy? Jesus was troubled in spirit that one of them was going to betray him. They didn't know who it was. Verse 22 says they looked on each other and doubted as to who it was. Judas asks, is it I? You know it is. And hands him a sob. John asks him, who is it, Lord? And he says, whoever I hand a sob to after I dip it. And he hands it to Judas. And then he says, that thou doest do quickly. Let's go! So, there is a way to be troubled at first glance, first thought of a thing when he said it first, one of you shall betray me. But then he identified the person, and then he embraced it. Because he knew he needed to. And we should know that we need to. And there's a place where duty does come in. And affection for our brethren. And affection for them. Do you know why Jesus was willing to do that? Because of his love for you. He said, that thou doest do quickly. Love is the great motive. And he did it for us. He was troubled. But that's how he dealt with it. He went right to work on it. And when you're troubled about something, go right to work on it and say, Lord, I know you're going to be with me in this, and I'm going to go do my reasonable best and do no more. I will do no more and trust you to bless my efforts. Heart trouble, anxiety, fear, hopelessness, worry, it comes in the ordinary course of life. Our first parents ruined this world. Remember that. Don't ever forget it. They ruined this life. So there are changes all the time. Things change. Things rust. Thieves steal. Things happen. We live in a, in a world of change because we wrecked it in the Garden of Eden through our first parents. It is not if bad events will come in your life, but rather when they will come, because they will come. Human nature can be hopeless. The devil is hopeless, and the world is fearfully hopeless. Men get so troubled with anxiety, fear, and hopelessness, they'll commit suicide trying to end it in their foolish opinion. You're going to die. 
We had a brother up here just a few weeks ago. You will die. Do not be troubled by it. Right. Now that's a pretty big trouble. You're going to die. Don't be troubled by it. You can choose to view death in faith, not in despair. Amen. Right. In faith. The Bible shows men dealing with politics. Three Hebrew men did pretty well, didn't they? In Daniel chapter 3, Paul dealt with politics well. Children, Hannah, poor woman, she wanted a child. She dealt with it well. Moses' mother, putting little Moses in a basket and putting him afloat on a river in Egypt. Finances, widows in both testaments. Did the Lord deliver? The Lord does deliver. And the Lord takes care of sins. You worried about your sins? Your heart is troubled because of your sins? David said, I have sinned against the Lord. The Lord said, I have forgiven thee. That quick, that fast. Peter went out and wept bitterly, and the Lord forgave him. It was your heart. Let not your heart be troubled. When yours is a plural pronoun. In a King James Bible, when you have those ye's, yours, that's a plural pronoun because it starts with Y. If it starts with T, thee, thy, thou, those are singular pronouns. So we have a plural pronoun attached to a singular noun, heart. So it's a collective noun. The singular noun, heart, is referring to all hearts, especially here, the 11 hearts of his 11 apostles that were still in the upper room with him. Let not your hearts be troubled. He has no cure for the world's hearts is my point that I'm making. Let not your hearts be troubled. The world's hearts are going to be troubled because they don't have an answer for anything except drugs, drunkenness, dysfunction and divorce, and the rest of the things that they do in their lives that make life worse, not better. It was your heart, their hearts, that must resist trouble. For other hearts have little hope. That's why Jesus said, My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Their peace is temporary, their peace is deceitful, their peace is false, their peace is a lie. Our God is the God of hope, and we have a basis and instruction for much hope. Look at Romans 15 and verse 13. Romans 15 and verse 13. With this we'll close. We're halfway through the verse. Romans 15, 13. I love this verse. Now the God of hope, that is our God. Amen. Their God, the gods of the heathen are not gods of hope. They're gods of death, mayhem, and destruction. They're gods of despair. Now the God of hope, our God, fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. God is able to fill you with all joy. God is able to fill you with all peace. God is able to cause you to abound in hope. By the power of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is the power that moved upon the face of the waters and brought forth dry land in Genesis chapter 1. The Holy Spirit moved upon Samson and he could do incredible things. The Holy Spirit would come upon David and he did great things. He came on the day of Pentecost and did great things with Galilean fishermen. The power of the Holy Ghost. What is your role in Romans 15? What is your role? In believing. Does that make sense with Luke 14, 1? Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. 
in believing. If you'll believe in God the way you should, and if you'll believe in Jesus Christ, His Son, the way you should, which adds a whole nother dimension to the love of God, it's coming. Look what you have. It's a great verse. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. You shouldn't have any troubles. God's with you, I'm with you. If you'll keep our commandments, you'll love us, we'll love you, and we'll manifest ourselves to you, and we'll come and make our abode with you. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost, filled with all joy, filled with all peace, abounding in hope. It doesn't get any better than that. Joy, peace, hope, filled with it, filled with all joy, peace, and hope, abounding in it. He'll provide the power for it. He'll do things that you're not able to do. He'll do supernatural with thing, things with you on the inside. Our role, to believe him. To believe him the way he, he is, that he is, that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him and the promises that he's given us. You lay hold of those things and he can fill you with joy, peace, and hope. Let not your heart be troubled. 